Good morning. So glad that you are here. My name is Jared. I have an opportunity to help lead all of Life Church in Post Falls. And apparently I did not get the memo that the other three churches were going to gather on a few city blocks in downtown Coeur d'Alene. So we're in no man's land in Post Falls. Glad to be a part of this. This park actually um, has a, a, a strong meaning in my own life. I love McEwen Park. I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I grew up just a few blocks up the road, actually. And so I remember as a late elementary student or young middle schooler, I remember riding my bike down 7th Street into this park with my friends, Sean and Danny and Mike, and we would swim at City Beach or we would hike tubs. My parents used to play softball on the softball fields that used to be just right over there. And I would hike and explore on this hillside. I ruined my knees on the basketball court right over there. I kissed my girlfriend for the first time, just a 10 minute hike up Tubbs Hill. Her name is Meredith. She's now my wife and my best friend. This, uh, this park is an epicenter for me of beautiful memories. I was just talking to a guy earlier who said he just got baptized right over here. This is holy ground for him. It feels a bit like it's holy ground for me too. But I've also done drugs in this park. I have been high in this park. I've been intoxicated dozens of times in this park. I've had encounters with the police just in that parking lot right over there. And so this park too, for me, is uh, it carries a bit of shame with it as well. And so it's mixed for me when I come here and when I think about this place. But I love it. If uh, If I were to name five places that have really shaped who I am and what I love and given me a real sense of home, McEwen Park would make that list. Now, I've already outed myself. I'm a guy with significant foolishness in my past. And I grew up in the church, but about 15 years old, I decided I knew what was best. And so I walked, I saw hypocrisy. I didn't like what I was feeling from the local church. And so I peaced out. And for that 10 years that I spent in my late teens and in my early 20s, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I wanted nothing to do with his church. And all the while I had this kind of nagging sense within me that I did not have right standing with God. Maybe, maybe I'm not a part of his family. Have you ever had that thought that if you walk into a church building or gather with a group of people, the whole place might like collapse in on you? Or you've maybe heard a friend say, I'm not going to church. You know, there's not tornadoes in Idaho, but they might start if I walk into a church building. I think culture has a general sense that if God does exist at all, he's not very happy with them. And they may be right. According to the Hebrew Bible, God and humanity has had a very complicated relationship for at least 4,500 years, at least. Uh, To be fair, God is not responsible for our complicated relationship with him, but humanity is. And about 3,500 years ago, God gave a law to a guy named Moses to help govern a people, a nation called Israel. 
And this law functioned as a series of guidelines so that people could assess their way of life in light of who God is and in light of who he, who he is. And we were so off the rails that we 100% needed outside intervention. And so he wisely and generously gave us that intervention. His law functioned for us like a mirror. We thought we were doing pretty good, but when we got in front of the mirror, we saw in high definition just how much of a mess we, we were. Have you ever gone on a long backpacking trip or gone on a long camping trip and you don't have a ton of running water, maybe you're bathing in the lake or the rivers or something like that. And when you get home and you look in the mirror, you're just like, I don't recognize myself. I need to clean up. I don't want to see what I am seeing. A, a look in the mirror that reveals our uncleanness is usually the point when we, when people walk away from God, when we quit on him, we shut down internally. We don't like what we're seeing. And so we want to get away from the mirror. It's like a, re a reflex for humanity to quit on God when we don't like what we see. And regularly we quit too soon too. Right as the magic is starting to happen, this is just reflexive in humanity, with humanity. It doesn't even matter if we're talking spirituality. When things get hard, we often quit right at the brink before some magic happens, right? Who's tried the whole 30? And exercise plans, personal development plans, therapy and counseling. We know that things get hard oftentimes before they get better. And quitting is a kind of death, actually. It's the death of hope. We wanted, we started something, we were looking for something, we were hoping for something. It got hard and we quit and we pull back and then there's a, 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 a death of internal hope within us. But when we quit on God, what then? When we quit on the one who has created us and who has given us purpose, what then? Here's what I want to propose, that we miss the good news of God's wonderful grace, that his generosity is just poised at us, pulled back, ready to be launched at us, at the ready to overpower every single failure that we have endured. Every possible way that we have failed, God's wonderful grace is poised at you and I to cover it. Bryn read the scripture just a moment ago. God's law was given so that all people could see just how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us something peculiar, giving us right standing with God and it results in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he answers this kind of rhetorical argument. Well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? If the grace keeps getting bigger, why don't we just keep sinning more? And Paul answers that. He says, of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? God's wonderful grace guarantees something. We can have, you can have right standing with him. And right standing comes with a promise. Life forever with the most perfectly good, amazingly powerful and generous being ever to exist. And that wonderful grace comes to us with a really, a pretty basic invitation as well, which is this, take Jesus Christ at his word. 
trust him, believe him. The superabundant grace that gives us right standing with God is Jesus himself. And this Jesus continually offers himself to us. He offers us peace with God. He offers us wisdom. He offers to nourish our souls. He offers to keep forgiving and picking us up again and again and again when we sin, which, by the way, we will. But if Jesus is dead, he can't give us any of that. If Jesus ended at his death, then he's no different than every other religious ruler in history. This Christianity, this Jesus thing, it's all a wish dream. It's futile. But if the resurrection of Jesus is real, it changes everything. Everything. Many of us have probably heard, if you've spent any time with the church, you've probably heard that there's really strong historical evidence for the resurrection. And so I would say, if if you're curious about the evidence, the historical evidence rooted in history for the resurrection, become a student. If you've got Christian friends or you've got people who love and follow Jesus, who uh, who you trust, go to them and ask them for resources or podcasts or sermons, books, whatever, on the reliability of the resurrection. It is at the ready. It is able to be found. I believe that the Apostle Paul's life is a very strong argument for the resurrection. He is the one who wrote the scripture that we just read. He had this encounter with Jesus after the resurrection, and immediately it shifted his allegiance. The Apostle Paul was, he hated followers of Jesus. He was trying to arrest them and, and, ha- and he wanted to crush and suppress those who were following Jesus. But when Jesus met him on a road as he was on the way to persecute Christians, his life and his allegiances immediately shifted like mid-swing right there. He dropped the bat and he picked up an entirely new game. He he stopped apprenticing to the religious rulers of the day who he had been friends with and kind of an up-and-comer among their ranks for a couple of decades. He stopped cold right then, and his allegiance was was given to Jesus Christ and to the church. And all of the disciples, at first, they feared him. They thought it was a ruse. They thought he was just trying to sneak in and out them so that they too would get dragged off to prison. But come to find out he was genuine and his preaching of the gospel was genuine. And all of these disciples who had lived with Jesus were amazed at Paul's manner and way and the substance of his new life. These disciples, we celebrated this, we talked about this and contemplated this on Good Friday. They, they after Jesus' death, they all hold up in a house behind locked doors because they were terrified. They thought they were going to be next. They thought their fate was going to be like that of Jesus Christ. And then within 40 days, all of them were willing to die and suffer and be beaten publicly and brutally. And not one of them recanted their testimony that they had indeed seen the real Jesus risen from the dead. I love this quote. It's from a guy named Charles Colson. He was actually involved in Watergate, in the Watergate scandal. He was the first person to be imprisoned 
Uh, He was a personal advisor to President Nixon in the 1970s. And he says this, he became a, a, a follower of Jesus right before he went to prison. And some accused him of trying to get off with an easy sentence, but he followed Jesus all the way to his death a few years ago. He said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never one time denying it. Every one of the disciples was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. He said Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, end quote. When a person experiences significant transformation or is exceptionally loyal and or is exceptionally loyal to to Jesus, that also qualifies as really good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, that he still speaks today because he is alive. And here is the offer in the plainest language that Scripture offers. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the Scripture tells us, he's reaching back into the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, anyone who trusts in in him, in Jesus, will never be disgraced. To never be disgraced is wonderful grace. To have that kind of guarantee, that kind of promise aimed right at us, that outside help has intervened to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to rescue us out of what we cannot rescue ourselves out of. I was thinking about this this week. Kids in war-torn countries do not often rescue themselves. Maybe you uh, saw this headline of an 11-year-old boy in in Ukraine named Hassan. His mom was caring for her aging mother who couldn't walk. And so Hassan's mom decided to stay back, but she she wanted to send her son, an 11-year-old, to his family, to his relatives in Slovakia. They wrote a phone number of the relatives on the back of his hand and sent him with a little bit of cash to make the trek 620 miles by himself, and he did it. It was absolutely amazing, but that's the exception. That's not the norm. What is the norm in these situations is rescuers will go in and extract, rescuers will come in and pull out the weak and the vulnerable. And in the case of Jesus of Nazareth, the rescuer doesn't just come in and get us to safety and then disappear on us. But he gives us a satellite phone and a cell number, gives us access to him. Not only that, but he gives us a room in his home and a key to his home. He gives us security. He gives us a seat at his table. He gives us access to his refrigerator and access to his resources and his debit card. And not only that, but he continues to teach us because he's alive today and he continues to speak and help us to navigate the urban warfare of this world that we live in. His wonderful grace is that text that we read earlier It's generosity, and it gives us a new future. Jesus Christ gives us a new reality. A guy named Eugene Peterson, uh, he's a 
uh, theologian and, and pastor. He lived in Kalispell, Montana, and he went to be with the Lord just a few years ago. He has a helpful commentary in Romans chapter six. He says this, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, where sin rules, how can we still live in our old house there? If we've left that, if that's old, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? He says, that's actually what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace. We entered into a new life in a new land, end quote. When people start taking the resurrected Jesus at his word, trusting that he has come to give us right standing with God, those same people experience radical and abundant transformation. Minds and tastes and desires and affections, they change and they shift. Have you had a chance to have a cup of coffee this morning? Wilder Roasters, thank you for providing this wonderful drink this morning. We've decided that we're going to cut the budget a little bit afterwards and we're going to offer you guys Folgers. Does that appetize you? Can you fix Folgers? You can put that in a Chemex. You can put it in a French press. You can do it AeroPress, and you cannot fix Folgers, can you? There's no comparison. Why? You've got to leave it behind if you found something better. We found an entirely new category because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us an entirely new category. He gives us the opposite of what haunts so many of us. He gives us right standing with God, right standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fixing, I'm using the present tense word. He is fixing our complicated relationship with God. He is with you, Christian, in the moment. If you are not a follower of Jesus, he is speaking to you now. He is giving us and he gives us peace with God, our father. He is the best part of waking up. It's not Folgers. I had a powerful encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord in February, the first weekend of February in 2004. And this encounter with him, though I grew up in the church, something shifted when I was like 25 years old. This encounter with him so rocked me that I had no choice but to leave behind my old ways because I had found a whole new category. I was actually baptized when I was 13 years old here in Coeur d'Alene. I made a real confession of faith when I was 13. I was baptized. And about two years later, I decided to walk away completely. I decided that it was more attractive for me to chase the culture's definition of the good life and that I would just put my hands to whatever promised pleasure. And I gave myself to that lifestyle of selling drugs and of being intoxicated regularly and of using people for a full decade of my life. And at 25 years old, I came up, though I was surrounded by friends, party friends, I came up completely empty. Paul says in verse three, have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, that we joined him in his death? He's using a, a word here, baptizo, that carries the idea of total immersion. Kids, when 
When you dye Easter eggs, you take that white Easter egg and you dunk it into the dye. And what happens when it comes out? Does it look different than when it went in? It does. It looks way different. It's completely different. What's interesting is that baptism, our baptism actually works in the opposite way. You get changed by Jesus Christ internally, and then you go into the waters of baptism. And I just want to take a note. We're going to celebrate a number of baptisms this morning of people raising their hands and saying, I'm in for new life with Christ. But evangelicals, we've done baptism a, a pretty significant disservice in history. And we've, we've kind of relegated it in many ways to mere symbolism. Not all of us and not in every way, but often we can dumb down baptism. We've been talking about this lately with the, the pastors of these groups, of, of our churches There's a lot happening with baptism. I'm not setting up baptism right now, guys. You can give me about five or 10 more minutes. Keep that water hot. (laughs) Baptism first, it says, our first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Above family, spouse, kids, neighbors, friends, country, job, vocation, Jesus Christ is our first allegiance. Baptism, this public declaration also says, we are saying as we get into the waters of baptism that we believe that our sins are completely forgiven by him, that we are clean and cleansed by God and that we have right standing with him. We're saying in our public declaration of baptism that we are part of the church. We have been initiated and are part of Jesus's sanctified people. There's also symbolism in baptism that that shows a picture of death and life. We go into the waters. It shows that we have died to our old way of life. We come up out of the waters. It shows that we have been raised to newness of life. It's also a picture of our future hope that we go into the waters showing that we will die and actually be buried but that our hope is that we will come up out of the water with resurrected bodies. We will be physically resurrected and share in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the last thing I'll say about baptism. It's an act of obedience that that functions like a springboard for more and more courage and more and more obedience to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever he asks of us. And so I want to just offer this to you this morning. This is not spur of the moment. We've talked about this among the pastors of our churches. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are his disciple and you know it, but you have not been baptized, we would love to welcome you to the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ today, if you're willing. We do have people who will be baptized, but if the Lord is doing something significant in you right now and you're going, man, my conscience has just been cut. I have not been baptized. I want to be baptized. Please come up to one of the pastors of the church that you identify with and talk to us. We'll ask you a few questions and we will likely baptize you. We do, just by disclaimer, reserve the right to to say, hey, we need to have some more conversations if we're not clear on exactly who Jesus is and what he's done. But if that's you, you know, I've been following him for years, but I haven't been baptized. Please come. We have towels for you. The bathrooms are heated. You can get a little relief there too. 
Baptism is this holy picture of our union with Jesus and our allegiance to Jesus. He is alive. If, if This is just what I want to say, and I'll, I'll conclude here in about five minutes, six minutes. If you have been baptized, there is this holy moment time-stamped in real history. If you are getting baptized this morning, this is a holy moment time-stamped in real history. Life will crash at you and I from every possible direction. And when it does, we can recall our baptism, the moment, the memory, the date, the people who are around us. And we can understand that new birth and right standing with God is ours. Jesus does not love a self-improved future version of you. He loves you. But he is also not content to just leave us where we are either. He wants our transformation. There's a new way of holding, a new way of doing business. He's holding out a new way of life to us, a new way of loving people, of meeting people's needs, of using our resources, of pursuing humility and staying the course together. Jesus wants our transformation in the here and now. Paul says in verse four, for we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the father, we now also may live new lives. So I want you to hear this loud and clear. Our baptisms are time-stamped records that independence and estrangement from God is not our reality. We have a father in heaven who is for us, not against us. We have a Lord who has guaranteed our futures in the family of God. We have moved out of that old house and that old country of sin. We've gladly let it go. Oftentimes it still comes at us fighting to get us back. But we have to understand that we have a new reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse five, since we have been united with Jesus in his death, we will also be raised to new life as he was. So the good news of Jesus says that we not only get transformation in the here and now, but we also get resurrection from the dead, bodily, physical resurrection. In every way, our identities get overwritten. Who remembers cassette tapes and CDs? You could could record something over what was already there. What's there now, what's been re-recorded, the mark of our life is identification with Jesus. And what's really, really, really wonderful is that he identifies with us. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you. He's given himself for you. The perfect son of God who did not deserve death chose to die. Why? To identify with you and I. But if we die, we die. We don't have the power to resurrect ourselves. We can't do anything. We can't bring ourselves back to life. The scriptures are actually saying that Jesus died and that we will physically die too. But Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, the Father, the Spirit. And though we all will die, we will also be raised to new life as Jesus was. And so the scriptures assert that that death actually is not the end. All human history is littered with our attempts to delay our deaths. Humanity's been searching for the fountain of life for how long? Now we're saying you got to drink half your body weight in water, right? 
You got to eat whole foods and organic all of the time. You've got to get your annual checkup, right? You got to get the injections and the creams and smooth out those wrinkles and get the new knees and get the new hips and get the heart surgery. And I'm making light of those things, but those are all good things. But it's evidence that something sinister is actually threatening life. We're experiencing decay. Additionally, anxiety and depression, loneliness and trauma are all markers that something is not right. We have this abiding, haunting, never-ending sense that there is more. There is something more. Paul writes in verse 6, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. That is incredible news. So there is more. The one who created everyone and everything has entered into our experience, become human, but he died at our hands. And then he rose to new life three days later. Did he slam the gavel on us when he showed his power? Did he pull away from us? He didn't. He stayed insanely near. When he rose from the grave, Jesus went straight to his disciples who abandoned him and who deserted him, who were cowering in fear, and he went straight to them to strengthen them. He didn't need time to rethink his approach. He didn't need to withdraw from us because we were unsafe and we were toxic to him. He rushed right in. He suffered the fools. Why? Because his heart is that good. And you can trust him with your future. He's bent on freeing us from the tyranny of our cruel master sin. And Jesus endured the penalty that we deserved, which is death. And he offered us the redemption that he earned so that this rebellion that is lodged deep within us might lose all of its power to control us. Baptism is time-stamped evidence that you have right standing with God. And it is a crucial move of allegiance to Jesus. Guys, now you can start filling the baptism tanks. Get in there. For at least 14, maybe 15, I heard people today, this park that we were gathering in is holy ground. I want us to take a moment and I want us to understand that this is holy ground right here. McEwen Park is a significant part of their story now too. There's an enemy, uh, there's a memory rather etched in your minds, time stamped in real history where you are declaring that right standing with God is your reality. And if I could speak for each of you, you might say that it might be the reality too for those here who aren't yet following Jesus. And it is certainly, certainly the reality for all those who declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, I want to I note this, that some people here are adults who are getting baptized for the very first time, but they've been following Jesus for quite some time. And they have made a decision that they need to be baptized, that they want to be baptized as a means of obeying him and of freeing their consciences. And they've decided that obeying 
Obedience to the risen Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords is more important than their nervousness, more important than their fears, more important than their comforts. And there are people here today who have experienced new life very recently and have said, get me in the tank. I want to be baptized. I'm all in with Jesus Christ. Maybe their story is your story and it's time to follow Jesus for real. So we want to offer to you that you can be baptized into the name of the Father and into the name of the Son and into the name of the Holy Spirit this morning, today. We're so grateful that you are here. As this, you can see some of the steam starting to rise off of this water. We, we had a measurement on the big tank earlier. It's 96 degrees. It's feeling good. All these coolers are, 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 it's water. It's hot water that people have brought from their homes to contribute to these baptisms. What a picture, a beautiful picture of family. Just everybody leaning in, doing their part. So if you are going to get baptized today, I'd invite you to head to the bathrooms if you want to, if you need to, to change. I want to invite the band up this morning to, to sing and to lead us. We have a charge. If you need to get up and move around so that you can get a view, feel free to do that. We have a charge to celebrate and to make a stink and to make this memorable for them. We are all in with the Lord Jesus Christ who frees us from our sin and gives us redemption. Let me pray. And then band, you guys can take it away. Father, we, we love you. We're so thankful for an Easter morning here. It's cold, but this is nothing. Nothing is gonna stop and get in the way of us declaring your reality and your goodness. So as your people are coming into the waters of baptism. Would you speak deeply to them and assure them that they are yours, that they have right standing with you? And would you continue to follow them? We know you will all the days of their life, staying present to them, calling them back. We fall down so many times, but you are consistently with us and present to us. We praise your name for being that powerful and that good hearted to us. We give you our worship today. We love you. God's people said, amen. Go ahead and stand. You probably want to. It's getting a little chilly. Let's worship together.